having started a few companies at an early stage, like you almost accept that you just go in not knowing. And therefore, the thing that you would do different, there's always something you would do different, but that thing is only relevant to the time at which you did it. And so may not be ever applicable again to your next business. So, so I think the learnings there are hard to apply to future things. So that's why I don't, to be honest, I don't really spend that much time thinking about it. I'm definitely a big believer of the, the school of thought that the quality of the decision is more important than the quality of the outcome because you don't fully control the outcome. My name is Ethan Song, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Rare Circles. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Ethan Song built a solution to turn customers to stakeholders and increase your engagement via Web3. All this and more on Code Story. Ethan Song is a boarder through and through, enjoying snowboarding, surfing, etc., and doing it as often as he can. He loves to read and has moved more into nonfiction over fiction as he's gotten older. Prior to his current venture, he co-founded Frank and Oak, a successful, thoughtful, and ethical apparel and e-commerce company. After the successes of his prior company, Ethan started to explore Web3 as a technology. He noticed that most people were focusing on visual assets, but he wanted to create a tool that allows companies to increase their engagement and revenue with their customers. This is the creation story of Rare Circles. Between 2012 and 2020, I was running a fairly large e-commerce business in apparel and sort of sustainable apparel space. And we had a very successful program that first was first called the Hunt Club, then eventually was renamed Stopland, which was effectively like a, a like a clothing subscription that came with like style advices and tips to help you dress better. And after I left the company, I realized that I was very interested in the idea of like, how do you leverage a community? How do you provide additional services to further engage the community and effectively change the way that people consume products. And so I was interested in building a startup in that space. And so, you know, I looked around, studied a lot of different business models, talked to a lot of brands, talked to a lot of potential merchants. When I discovered, you know, the potential of Web3 as a technology, I realized that most of what people were, were working on was focused on like the idea of digital goods and collectibles. But I felt that as a more membership-oriented product, uh, it could actually really help business that exists today to engage deeper with their customers. So effectively, that's how we kind of got started with the intent of creating a product that helps to deepen engagement from your community or your supporters, and also eventually obviously helps you to generate more revenue from that same community. So that's what Rare Circle does. Tell me about the MVP. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? MVP is a relative term now, I feel like. I think minimum best is probably a better way to describe what we always aim for because the UI has to be good enough so that someone wants to use it. What we really did that was a little bit different is that, you know, you always have this sort of cold start problem when you're creating a new product, especially when it's a software product where it's like you have the product but no one wants to use it, right? And how do you get some traction behind using it? And often when you have no users, the barrier to entry is quite high. So what we actually did is 
Before launching a product, we spend quite a bit of time doing interviews, doing market discovery, speaking to a lot of potential users of the product and effectively onboarding them through that process so that when we did have a product to test, we already had like a set of users to test them and with whom we have a relationship. And so we can get like rapid feedback on a product. So I would say it probably took us maybe six months of analysis, parallel maybe three to six months of building to get to the first product. But the thing is like the first product is not that meaningful in the sense it's just a start. I think the, you know, and, and a lot of times you, you think, you know, obviously a lot of people have watched the social network and they hope basically that they just like create the product in the dorm and it just explodes. And you know, 99% of the time or 99.9% of the time, that is not the case. And so, you know, we were able to basically create a product that enabled you to create memberships right off the gate, but that was, you know, fairly basic. And so since then we've been adding more uh, features, getting more feedback from both our customers, which in our case, we're a B2B product. And so in our case, it, they tend to be brands, force teams, game developers and, and gaming studios and their fans and seeing like, okay, like how are we helping that relationship? How are we creating a new experience for, for your fans and for you? That's what we've been really fine tuning. That's a perfect segue. So let's jump into that fine tuning process or maturation process or progression process. How, how did you go about doing that or how are you going about doing that? I think to put that in a box, what I'm looking for is how do you go about building your roadmap? And how do you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Rare Circles? So it's definitely like as, as much art and science, I think every different teams build their roadmap differently. I would say that in our case, we definitely have a philosophy of like, you know, show and tell. We want to have a version to show our customers before we can gain feedback. Because often if we just talk about it, it tends to be too high level. And so what, what we'll do basically is at least like half of our roadmap comes from what we think is needed to drive the kind of experience. And that comes from a combination of like competitive research, you know, looking at other spaces. I, I always like to learn from non-competitive products, but that are doing something different, but that where the learnings can be applied to what we're doing. So ideation effective within our own team. The other half comes from a combination of surveys and actual conversations with customers. Um, and then we basically, you know, stack rank them based on what, what gives the highest impact and has the lowest development cost in order to see what we're going to do because we rather have more momentum versus spending like, you know, multiple months on a really hard feature that ultimately no one uses. And so we'll, we'll tend to prioritize definitely faster uh, turnaround products and features so we can put it in front of our customers. Now, the tricky part is obviously you also have different segments of customers. I think you have to spend some time to assess that every segment may not want the same things. And sometimes you can't serve all segments at once, especially when you're in early stage startups. And so you have to, you have to make some choices there. Knack, knack. Who's there? Uh, yeah, I'd rather not share that with you. Hey, no sweat. Come on in. Make yourself at home and take anything you want. Wait, you wouldn't let a stranger in your house. Why would you let anonymous traffic scrape your website? Introducing IP Info's Privacy Detection API, a fast and simple way to detect malicious traffic. Activate your free trial today at ipinfo.io and don't forget to use the promo code CODESTORY at checkout. Let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Because we started building a product from scratch, it's very different than when you hire for a larger team. So in my previous company, you know, that, that I operated for close to nine years, we went from like a team of like two to about 200. I had kind of seen the different, not just skill set, but especially culture and values that 
will require different stages and sometimes they're not the same. And so I would say at an early stage, there's two things I think that we did. One, we were looking for really like more hustle versus pure experience, meaning like we take someone that was willing to work hard, that was willing to experiment, that was willing to fail fast over someone who maybe has like five or 10 years more experience. I think that's one thing that was really important to us to keep that, you know, hustle and work hard culture at an early stage. The second piece is when you have a small team, let's say under 10, you know, it's like a family, right? Everyone's very close. And so we definitely like look for referrals from people that we already knew for the early team members, because what happens when you do that is that you kind of save like a few months or a few quarters of getting to know each other because you already have some kind of established relationship. And also because they come recommended, typically there's a better filtering of like, you know, how, how skilled or how ready they are to go. So I would say it's a combination of those two things. And, and last point is, I do think that like early stage is not for everyone. It's hard to work. You don't make more money. And so I think you need to find the right cast of characters that are, are not only not afraid of that, but actually embrace the opportunity to build something new. And I would say it's definitely not about, you know, the money or the, out, the financial outcome because that's just too far away. I think it's really about, you know, making a small dent on the world and building something from scratch that people will start using. Let's flip to scalability. So this will be interesting given, you know, the tech you're building and what is integrated in it. But I'm going to ask it kind of wide open. Was this built to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow in any capacity? No, I mean, our, our, our philosophy is always to, you know, refactor as we grow. So we definitely accumulate some tech debt as we move along. Um, you know, I think it's and part of the reason is because we're building a new space. I think it'd be different if we were, you know, building in a mature space like HR or, you know, areas that already have clarity in terms of where the product is going. But because we're building a fairly new market, effectively redefining what you know membership and loyalty means for the next 10 years, it's very hard to build for scale at early on because you're most likely going to be wrong. And so we definitely prioritize more framework or experimentation and moving fast. And so like definitely like what happens is that every couple of months we have to, you know, take a break in our sprints and, you know, do one or two that are more focused, more focused on refactoring before things start breaking down. Eventually, do we get to a stage where we'll have to basically do a more major refactor? Absolutely. But I think it's, there's a cost to moving fast. There's a cost of like, you know, having a really, you know, great, like iterative process to improve your product. And, and that is one of the costs. Now, of course, you know, if you could do both, that'd be great at the same time. But once again, then, then you have to hire a bigger team. So there's a cost of that as well. So the short story is we prioritize speed and, and getting a product in front of our customers first. Being a little bit less scalable, it's something we'll, we'll accept. Okay, so as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with Rare Circles, what are you most proud of? What I'm the most proud of is, I would say it's two things. I think one, obviously the team, you know, we're a team about 20 at the moment. It's still a small team, uh, but it's a very strong team. And, you know, I think that over, you know, last two years, we're able to kind of fine tune the right cast of characters for this company. And so I think the team is strong. The team works well together. So that's definitely something that I'm proud of. And the second component is just, you know, overall positioning of where the product is versus where the market is going. Obviously, you know, currently we're in a downturn. You know, there's a lot of challenges and headwinds in, in both the Web3 space as well as in the, you know, general software and tech space. And so being able to be in a strong position to continue building great product while, you know, managing expectations, cash and all that stuff is quite tricky. And, and I feel like, we, we were always 
cool-headed, made the right decisions to put us in a position where we can win in the long term. You know, the, the thing I think that's a little bit different when you're a second-time founder or, or third-time founder is that like you know that there's going to be things that you can't plan for and you know that like things are not going to stay good forever. And so you have to kind of be ready for that. And you also realize that like startups are not like, you know, two or three or four year journeys. They're really like eight to 10 year journeys. And, and that's like, you know, potentially a short amount of time. And so the one thing that I've learned to do, even though I'm impatient on the inside, I've learned to kind of like have a bit of a more long-term view. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, I'm proud that our team has able, been able to absorb that as well. Okay, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Yeah, I mean, I think in early stage, like what happens is like, especially in the beginning, like some of the mistakes that we made was definitely around like, who is the product for? You know, obviously, like I, I come from the branded space. And so it was easy for us to think of, okay, like these are the customers that it's for. But really what you have to do is being able to not just find customers that want the product, but find customers that really want the product. And, and I would say that nuance is really important. And I think in some cases, you know, we, we, we sold or onboarded customers that weren't quite ready. And so it's hard to get the right feedback from those customers because they're not your ideal users. So I would say the biggest lesson there and, and something that, look, it's, it's always something that you need to look for is really to have not so much focus on total addressable market, but rather on like who are the most passionate users, who are the users that are going to truly embrace the product and, and, and drive adoption and provide feedback, even if it means a smaller market to start with. And I think that it's counterintuitive because it feels as though if you do that, you grow slower, but actually you grow faster because they're more passionate, they talk about it more, they share more. And so that that's definitely something that, you know, I've always known, but still it's easy to kind of get distracted with large customers, large accounts and, and signing contracts. I think, and that's one area that definitely, uh, I took some additional learning in this instance. This will be fun. Ethan, what's the future look like for the product and for your team? Our, our premise is that the kind of previous age of like digital marketing and digital or transaction-based relationship is going to come to an end. And, and what I mean by that is that if you think about the last 10 years, all the way until like 2021, you know, peak COVID, from let's say 2009, 2010, from the last kind of recession or last financial crisis, you had this like amazing time when a few things came about, you know, obviously the growth of Facebook, Instagram, and, and the social media platforms. You also had like basically the growth of e-commerce, you know, with platforms like Shopify, all of these small merchants get into that space. Um, but if you actually dig into it, it's a very one directional relationship where you put ads, someone clicks on the ads, converts on a transactional website. And what we're finding, you know, from speaking to customers is that the cost of marketing, cost of acquisition is going up. It's harder to target your customers because of, you know, I, I personally think positive privacy measures, but they're still challenging for merchants to deal with that. You know, third-party data is becoming quite challenging. You know, sources of marketing that have worked in the past, like email marketing or SMS are decreasing in efficiency as people unsubscribe or just like don't read their emails anymore. And so you're really creating this like new kind of paradigm shift where most merchants and brands don't know how to acquire new customers and have a hard time retaining their customers. And so our perspective is that everything is gonna shift from the transaction to the individual, and that the relationship that you have with your customers, that the actual community that you build will drive business success, more so than your ability to market, more so than your ability to you know, build great products. 
your ability to build great community and engage that community and over time monetize that community will define basically the successful merchants of the next 10 years. Okay, so let's switch to you, Ethan. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something that you look up to and why. I'm quite lucky because I, I have the chance to, you know, speak with a lot of other entrepreneurs and, and learn from their success or, or learn from their challenges. I also like, do spend a lot of time reading. You know, I, I would say two things I've, I've kind of learned, you know, uh, over the last 10 years building different products is you do have to spend time, you know, sort of educating yourself and continuous learning. Like, you know, I read that article and I think like Bill Gates still reads like an hour uh, a night, you know, like um, to make sure, not to make sure, but because he's interested in like, you know, the future and, and what's coming. And so I think like continuing to learn is extremely important. And I do that. The second part is I am part of a bunch of different entrepreneurs, kind of business groups, you know, where we exchange basically, you know, learnings. And I feel like that's highly relevant because, you know, some of those learnings you can't read, you know, you can read about that. You can't, they're either, they're either private or they're just not ways that you can simplify those, those discussions. And so I do find those extremely useful. And I would say that on, on the reading side, I, I realized uh, a lot of the kind of new books are basically uh, repetitions of books that have already been written. So I've started a few years ago to read, you know, more like original books. And, and I found that's been quite useful in terms of like learning about where to go. And it's crazy how you'll read a book from like the 40s and 50s and how, how applicable it is actually to today's world. And so that's something that I've definitely started doing. Now, obviously, it's not always easy. Sometimes the writing is like tiny, but uh, it's definitely worthwhile. Okay, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Maybe it's not a mistake, but it's like a tweak. You do something a little different. I'm not saying that there's nothing I would have done different. I think it's just that like having started a few companies at an early stage, like you almost accept that you just go in not knowing and therefore the thing that you would do different, there's always something you would do different, but that thing is only relevant to the time at which you did it. And so it may not be ever applicable again to your next business. So so I think the learnings there are hard to apply to future things. So that's why I don't, to be honest, I don't really spend that much time thinking about it. I'm definitely a big believer of the, the school of thought that the quality of the decision is more important than the quality of the outcome because you don't fully control the outcome. I, I feel confident that at that point in time, I made the right decision based on data that I had. Now, did I make every right decision? No, probably not. I think understanding that those were the right decisions with the data and with the context, I think is sort of how I move forward. Um, but that said, I think, you know, you just don't know how the market's going to, you know, handle it. You don't know how, what investors are going to think about what you're looking to build. You don't know how like adoption is going to happen. And so really what you want to do is get something out as fast as possible and go into this sort of like fail fast mentality because failing fast is the only way to actually learn and grow. And so that's something we've applied. And so all the things that you say that maybe I should have done differently to me were part of the learning experience. So last question, Ethan. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show off to the world. Can't wait to show off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit several times? Yeah, I, I would say like, I think the first thing that I always tell anyone is, is just enjoy the ride. You know, I, I've seen friends being extremely successful and become billionaires. And I've seen friends that have not succeed. And I think that like neither of them are better or worse than the other. I think they, you know, they, some of them got lucky. Some of them is timing related. You know, there's all these things that can happen. But I would say that 
like one when you actually say one of the things that you wish you had changed, not for this business, but for my previous business, because I was in my early twenties when I started that one, I definitely wish I had enjoyed more those instances. Like the time with the team, the successes basically of the products, just a different like having the time to to like actually be conscious of what's happening and of the success that you have. Versus always thinking about the next thing that you're building. I think as CEOs and as co-founders, we always think about like, okay, like what's my next goal? What's my next kind of, you know, how do I go bigger? And you don't enjoy the moment. So I think definitely being grateful and enjoying the moment, I think is extremely important. The second piece is whether you're like at the top of whatever game you think you're at or at the bottom, you're never as good or as bad as other people will say you are. If you're on a cover of Fortune, well, that's great for you, but you know, you should, you know, have, uh, you know, the the knowledge to know that it kind of doesn't really mean that much, and, and that if no one wants to call you, it also doesn't mean that much, and you can continue doing the craft and the work that you've always wanted to do. And so, just not get caught up in in the highs and lows. I think is something that's really important because, you know, almost every business I've seen will go through like very like significant highs and significant lows. And if you want to be there for a long term, you kind of almost have to like diminish those. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, Ethan, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Rare Circles. Sounds great. Appreciate it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big-